hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And fall is here in big style in Nova Scotia. We, of course, are one of the parts of the world which has beautiful autumn colours. We're about 44.4 degrees north here on the east coast of the North American continent. And that means that we get this gentle slide into winter uh, through the latter part of October, which then makes the trees, the leaves all turn beautiful hues of uh, yellow and orange and brown and red. It's a, a really, really beautiful part of the world. But I know, having lived here now for oh, like seven or eight years, that this time of year is also where we experience our biggest shift in temperatures, and it's when the bigger winds start to blow. And absolutely on cue, as always, 21st of October, the temperature in the daytime was 21 degrees Celsius here in Nova Scotia. And by the 1st of November, I will have uh, the first frosts that I need to make sure my plants are protected away from. So in amongst those two things, those two kind of pointers, which I've developed over the last couple of years of living here, I know that the other thing is that the last week of October often has a big weather system come through and absolutely bang on time. There's a, a big system running up the east coast of the US and off Nova Scotia today. It's been blowing here about 35 knots for the last 36 hours. And um, it's been an opportunity for me to check out the performance of the new mooring, which we put in for the Maxi Weddell, which we brought back from Europe a couple of months ago. Um, a big mooring was put in by Ironbound Rigging from Lunenburg here. Thanks very much to Mike and to Benny and Christian who uh, put that in for me a couple of weeks back. Um, it took a lot of um, uh, kind of consultation on exactly how we should do the mooring because it's got its own particular um, um well, I wouldn't say problems, but it's got its own particular characteristics this morning. And uh, last night I was out about nine o'clock watching the boat as it was uh, sitting on its mooring, just kind of assessing if what we had created, if I, what I'd paid for was actually doing the job. And indeed it was. So I gave you an idea as I was out there that, you know, everybody now in the Northern Hemisphere is going into winter and we're all looking at higher winds and whether you're uh, going to keep your boat on a mooring or if you're going to keep it uh, on the land somewhere, if you're going to be out at sea sailing or if you're going to be on anchor, um, we're all going to have to deal with high winds and, and more difficult winter conditions. So this is not going to be particularly about winterizing the boat. We'll get into that uh, at another time. But I'm just looking at dealing with high winds um, in four separate realms that we all regularly have to deal with, namely at anchor, on a mooring, at sea or ashore. So I'm going to go through um, the mooring that we put in here and the considerations I had. I realized as I was there last night, the, the great thing was that I like didn't have to do anything and there was nothing that needed to be done. So that was perfect. And that was exactly as it should be after all of the thought and, uh, and time and effort that's gone into getting this system set up for these boats. As you might or might not be aware from listening to the podcast, the boats that we're talking about is an 80 foot maxi with a 100, 120 foot rig and uh, 20 tons in weight um, sitting in about 50 feet of water um, and the other one is a open 60 which is 60 foot long of course and uh, weighs about nine tons also has a 100 110 foot mast and she's much closer in sitting in about um, 23 24 feet of water so 
two sorts of different kinds of challenges, two different kinds of boats. And uh, I've learned a lot in the period of time that I've had to maintain the boats here at the house. It's uh, it's great leaving your boat on the trots at some, um, you know, at some river or an estuary or lake or wherever it is. You leave the boat down the harbour, in the sea, whatever it is, but you don't see the boat uh, on anchor or on mooring all the time. But literally, as I look out the window here from the uh, sunroom where I record these uh, podcasts, I can see the masts of both boats and uh, I'm regularly down there uh, with the work that we're doing on the boats, watching them moving around. So I've become a bit of a an expert on what they're doing. And um, yeah, I'd like to share with you some of the things I've learned in the last last couple of years doing this here at the house with the mooring and then on a wider scale with being at sea and all the other places. So that's what we're going to do for today's podcast. So go and grab your coffee or your tea, whatever it is, get the dog's leash ready. It's time to get out the cleaning products and do the house, whatever you do when you're listening to one of these or <laughs> get out the sander because it seems to be a lot of people do sanding to these. I'm not sure if I'm, I'm not sure if that's a compliment or some kind of criticism, but um, yes, begin whatever you're about to do and uh, we'll, we'll get into how to deal with high winds. Okay, so I'll start with the mooring because that's the one that um, kind of led me to thinking about this. The mooring that which you've got here now, as I say, was put in by Ironbound Rigging just a couple of um, couple of days ago. So we wanted to create a mooring which was as strong as possible for the vessel that it was intended for, which was always this uh, twenty ton. Uh, maxi. One of the things that I've learned over time, of course, is that if something's going to disrupt what's going on on your mooring or on your anchoring system, it's going to be the waves primarily. The bow heaving up and down has got a very strong ability to unsettle whatever it is that's on the bottom. Um, tidal range being greater than you expect, whether that's in a mooring or um, on an anchor, in an anchoring situation is the other thing. But the bow's um, movement relative to whatever is the thing on the seabed is the first consideration. So obviously, if we're going to talk about moorings first, uh, some of the crossover is is obvious with anchoring. Make sure that the boat is in a protected bay. So the bay where I have the boats here in Nova Scotia is extremely well protected from the north, the northeast, and the northwest. And that was absolutely something I was smitten by when I first kind of came across this house because I knew that the uh, if the boats were able to come into this bay, the greatest threat to them from any weather system would be winds coming from the north and more particularly the northeast. So uh, the bay where this uh, the boats are presently um, presently moored was actually a place where boats were built, um, I think as early as they were built here in Lunenburg, which means basically as early as they were built in Nova Scotia. I mean like proper big boats. What we can say is that given an absolutely free reign, they chose this spot because they were doing boat building and presumably they had boats in construction on the shore and they had boats uh, at anchor just off of their construction facility. So uh, the opportunity to just pick where your boat's going to be to such a degree uh, that, that these guys had is is very, very rare. Of course, normally you have to go to the marina that's closest to you or to the harbour that's closest to you, you, often on waiting list before you can get a mooring. And then when you get a mooring, God, you're just so glad that you've got it. It kind of doesn't matter where anything is. But in terms of looking at the location, which river you go to which harbor you go to which marina there are some considerations and some of the characteristics of this island which make it very very good is that the primary winds in this area have set are from the north and northeast or the stronger ones which are going to be an issue and this island rises gently on the northern and northeastern side which lifts the wind up and then when it gets to its maximum elevation which is about 
I know, maybe 130 feet, like 40, 45 meters, something like that. The island then starts to slope very quickly down towards the shore, down towards the little bay where the boats are. So the wind uh, as it starts blowing in harder and harder. It's, it's getting lifted somewhat and it's getting broken up by the big trees that are on this island. And then just as quickly, the land drops away from it and, um, and the, 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 the wind continues to stay somewhat elevated away from the land, um, providing protection then for the boats there in the bay on the southern side of it. So the little bay where uh, I have the boats is, I think historically it's called Black Bay, and uh, it's it's a real find for me because the boats I have are very deep draft. Uh, they both have drafts of 4.5 meters, like 17 feet, and both of them are being race boats, have almost no hull in the water. If you're standing inside one of our boats, um, on the maxi there are actually floorboards and a, and a frame inside, and there's probably a like uh 30 centimeters like one foot of depth of bilge but if you're in the open 60 you you know you go in you're standing on the inside of the hull and when either of those boats when you're standing on the inside of the hull the water level outside is at or just below your knees they only have about um two foot maximum uh, uh, in the water i think at the very deepest point the the open 60 probably only has one foot in the water they are designed as surfboards they're designed to be uh, able to skip across the waves and and you know get themselves free of the cloying friction of the surface of the water and then get up and plane so that's great but on the other hand it means that from an anchoring point of view there's hardly any boat in the water so what are the forces then acting on the boat well for me it's the it's the wind the wind on pushing on the rigs is the biggest force and to give you an idea like uh, an 80 foot boat with a hundred foot uh, mast in a hundred knot gust will experience 30,000 pounds of uh, pressure against the rig which is about 13 tons of pressure 13,000 kilos give or take so a huge amount of force is being applied to the rig just by the pressure of the wind now a hundred knots now that's that's quite a lot of wind isn't it if to get 100 knots you'd have to have an average wind speed of like 65 knots and then get a gust at 140 percent or you're in some kind of like extreme extreme situation so uh you know if there's getting 100 knots <laughs> like regularly in a storm like this is something pretty big's going on so um for me what i'm looking for first is how can i alleviate the pressures on the mast which um you know are a for me, the biggest the biggest issue. Now, if you have a boat which has got a big deep keel, then you're also looking at tide and the movement of the water where you are. If you're in a river, if you've got a port which regularly floods and, and, and ebbs its uh, water, they're big factors. But for me, where I am here, it's all about the wind. And so the geographic location of this bay um, is perfect for me. The other thing that I look at is like, okay, if this really does go horribly, horribly wrong and something snaps, something breaks, something gives way unexpectedly, the next question for me is where do these boats end up and the good thing is that the little patch of water which is to the south of this island is about 50 feet in the middle and then it gently shelves uh, over to the southern side and uh, actually Falcon did break off her mooring um, three four months ago now and did a little bit of damage as she past the neighbor's dock but ultimately where she ended up was just in the mud like on the other side of the uh, little bay so i look at what protection have i got for the from the wind that's from the most dangerous and most likely quadrant and then i look at what happens if it goes wrong now if you're in a mooring field and it starts to go wrong well 
anybody hits you or you hit anybody else, it's all going to be equally bad, isn't it? Then just make sure the gear is good and make sure your swing rates are what the harbour requires or the the master at the um, yacht club requires. But um, you've got to you've got to take what you can. But if you had an open choice of where you'd be this piece of land where I am now for the kind of boats I have is absolutely perfect even if the moorings all break they just end up in the mud like 500 meters something like that on the other side of the bay so I looked at that stuff first and that was when I brought the first boat here which was probably about four years ago I had Challenger our Whitbread 60 here and she was sitting on the mooring that was already in this bay now the mooring which is on this bay let me tell you how close this mooring is to the uh, to the shoreline um, probably each season when I'm working on the boat four people will come up in a boat and say are you aground <laughs> because the mooring is that close to the edge um, the boats are 60 foot long the, the um, uh, Whitbread 60 and the open 60 100 110 foot mast something like that they're big boats with deep draft and 4.5 meters but the benefit I have here is that the drop-off on this side on the northern side of this bay is very very rapid it's very much slower on the other side of the bay it's very much more gentle the gradient um, it gets shallower more slowly but on this side of the bay by the time you've gone say 50 feet away from the the land from the low water mark you're already in 20 foot of water so everything came together when I found this piece of land and found this house and the fact that the boats could be moored really close in made it very easy for logistics of what we were doing and made a huge amount of protection available but that first mooring um, which Falcon was attached to and for a little while that um, Challenger was attached to it was just something that was already here when I got here and I actually I actually went down I took a look at it after um, we had had this issue where the, the boat let go off the mooring it had been checked previously obviously it had been checked previously but there's a lot of mud on the bottom here and the mud had uh, kind of covered over the actual sinker weight that was at the bottom now I was told it was a pretty heavy mooring and I can report that it has never moved but as uh, big storms have come through and as the mooring itself has wriggled and jiggled around with this big boat attached to it I can now make out if I dig down into the mud what it is and it's basically uh, four sonar tubes with big feet on the end of them so if you're not into contracting work and, and home renovations um, and I think this is quite a North American thing basically a sonar tube is a big cardboard tube that's using construction you pour concrete into and Bigfoot is the like um, conical shaped end piece that you put on there to make it even more heavy so you normally you'd like bury this in a hole you'd form up this plastic bucket put the, the concrete tube into it fill it all with concrete this would be in a hole you then fill backfill the hole and you'd have this like concrete strong concrete protuberance that you could then put your joinery onto to build a house or build a deck or whatever so it's like a giant foundation uh, footing it's probably the concrete's probably about just I'm looking at my hands here trying to work out it's probably about 60 centimeters about two feet in diameter and then the big feet at the either end are about three feet in diameter so and total length would be from a guess is probably about three meters something like that so what's that like nine feet so we've got some pretty heavy sonar tubes and then there's there's at least four I wonder if there's another one and they're all held together which what feels like a one inch ship's chain uh, which is wrapped all around these things and then comes up to the main connection point so what broke back uh, a couple of months ago was the shackle which was um, connecting the chains 
of that weird sinker unit which is sitting down there to the uh, to the bottom chain. We're going to get into the construction of moorings in a second, but it was an old shackle which I probably should have replaced earlier on. My fault. There you go, another lesson learnt. But um, the the chain that goes around the sonar tubes, the chain that's attached to the sinker essentially, looks in good condition. And uh, I've got to say, if if it ever came to a point where we need to replace the chain, I have no idea how that would happen. So. Um, the, the little open 60 is actually connected to a very weird sinker arrangement and I can only report that it has apart from that one breakage where it disappeared <laughs> it's never moved since and it has been there for like two years so um, I, I'm very happy with its performance I'm even happier now it has brand new shackles and uh, all nicely moused onto it but it's a very unusual non-standard sinker so let's let's get into what we specified for the new mooring because that's a lot closer to um, to what anybody else would normally have so the first thing when considering a, a mooring is the bottom that you're going to be putting it into and there's a number of different options that are available if, if you're new to sailing and new to anchoring and the kind of concepts of getting things to stick on the ground, if we're putting an anchor down, we're normally trying to put down some kind of shaped device, a plow shaped or with big kind of flukes on it, which is going to dig into the bottom, into the sand, into the mud, whatever it is. And it's going to produce a mechanical lock which the boat then pulls against and as it pulls against it it just digs that device deeper and deeper and deeper into the bottom creating a, a you know a solid anchoring point that process is heavily facilitated by the fact that there is heavy chain attached to the shank of the anchor and that means that whatever pull the boat puts onto the um, onto the anchor it has been transmitted down through the chain and has gone from being a vertical up and down motion or a, 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 that kind of pullback motion the boat has like a diagonal motion between the head of the anchor and the boat that's all been translated into a horizontal pull because of the weight of the chain the the weight of the chain makes the chain lay as flat as possible or if it does get pulled upon it has a deep curve in it and we call that the catenary of the chain so um when you're dealing with moorings it's a little bit different because we are trying to um, create a system which is through through basically through sheer weight or, or strength or, or mechanical lock it's connecting to the bottom with very little chain attached to it if you had an anchor down the anchor might weigh a fraction of the weight of the boat but it may have a hundred foot of chain attached to it or it might have a um, hundred foot of chain and a hundred foot of rope attached to it or all kinds of combinations of things but you're going to have a big scope, a big circle that the boat can move around on. On moorings, obviously, it's if you're going to have more than one boat attached to uh, in, in the same field, then you're going to have to have much shorter scope. So that weight needs to be much, much greater, much greater than any anchor could ever be on any kind of normal sized boat. So what material is that anchor going to be made of? The anchor that is at the bottom of your mooring. Let's call it a sinker rather than anchor because that gets a bit confusing. So what material is that sinker going to be made from? So what I went for this time is, uh, is, is concrete and I went for it because of price point and simplicity. The other option would be stone, uh, granite, something like that. In this area where I live, um, this was huge glacial erratic boulders everywhere in this part of the world. Um, granite is like everywhere. If you dig down in my garden three feet, you're on bedrock, give or take in some areas. So granite's not an issue for us here. And it's rather easy for the mooring builders to 
take big rocks, 3,000, 4,000 pound rocks, and then drill a dirty great big hole through it, put a big metal bar through it with a ring eye on the end of it, and that is the sinker for your um, for your mooring. Now that's possible, but around here there's only a couple of people that do that kind of work and they are extraordinarily busy. And when we came to putting this mooring in, I just hit it at the time where there's a lot of houses being sold here. There's a lot of people putting moorings in and that wasn't possible for, for quite a while. So I went with a concrete one. Now what's the difference? Like heavy stuff's heavy, whatever you do, right? But the difference is that stone is a lot more dense than concrete and so when it's underwater for the same weight for weight the stone will be smaller and that means that it displaces less water i.e it's not as buoyant so you don't think of rocks and concrete underwater as being buoyant but buoyancy is a, a function of the volume and the mass of the object so the buoyancy of the concrete is greater because it has a greater volume for the same mass as the rock so um, it would be possible absolutely for me to weight it and, and get rocks to do what I've done with concrete but what we did is just went over the top of the concrete to make up for it so the concrete which we've used uh, here will lose about 45% uh, of its weight underwater basically 50% of its weight underwater um, and that means that we need to have a lot more weight down there than you might otherwise expect. So what we put in is a, a single 5,000 pound sinker with a, a dirty great big shackle on it. I'm gonna get into the specifics of it later on, but let's just you know get a general idea here. A dirty great big shackle on it. And then we connected that via three quarters chain to another 5,000 pound sinker, about 20 foot of chain. So we've got 5,000 pounds of concrete, big shackle, a piece of chain that's 20 foot long, and another big shackle and it's attached onto the next 5,000 pound sinker. The thing also to bear in mind that having gone down and, and dived these, like literally as they were being put in to check everything was right, as soon as they hit the bottom, the 5,000 pound sinkers were already under the surface of the mud. Within five minutes of them being on the bottom, they had already sunk into the mud to the point where only the top bars were available. So um, I'm sure that given time and a little bit of pulling and wiggling and jiggling from the boats, they will nestle themselves down until they are well under the mud. So we have the volume and the mass of the object that we have to deal with. Should we use concrete? Should we use a rock? The other thing we have to deal with is the suction. Now, rocks, we this never gets talked about much, but, you know, rocks are very heavy and will burrow the way down underwater and you're not going to move a heavy like three four five thousand pound rock you're not going to move that it's uh you know you're gonna need a big boat to move that around but the suction on a rock because it's smaller and because it's shaped in the way it's shaped i would propose that the suction is probably less than a giant square bit of concrete which has a flat bottom on its underside if you think about trying to get your foot out of mud which is nice rounded contoured shape and trying to get your welly out of the mud obviously the the welly often stays in the mud right so i put down two five thousand pound concrete wellies <laughs> and i'm not expecting them to move um next what we had to do is we had to add some catenary there's there's no point having the chain or the rope or whatever it is from your boat going straight down to the sinker because then the boat is just you're basically challenging the boat like hey can you can you lift the sinker have a go what we need to do is we need to translate that force into a horizontal force a bit like we do in anchoring but we can use much bigger materials here which really make sure the boat can't um can't easily turn its uh, its up and down motion on the surface of the water into an up and down motion at the sinker so the boat now is attached to 
um, 100 foot of chain. The first 50 foot of chain, uh, and bear in mind this, this mooring is in 50 feet of water. That's why there's such big lengths here. The first 50 foot of the chain on the seabed coming from those two concrete wellies that we talked about is a one inch ship's chain. So that means that the, the links, the diameter of the metal in the links is one inch. Um, and it's heavy, it's very, very heavy. That goes up to a, I think a 7 8 shackle, a high test 7 8 shackle, which then goes to grade 80 chain. Um, and that chain is, I've got the diameters here. I was smart enough to get the quote from Ironbound Rigging and put it here on my iPad so that I'd be able to give you the details uh, as we're going along. But as always with my iPad, it's got this facial recognition and uh, that means I have to stare into the black into the blackness of the iPad like a fool to try and get the details up. Here we go. We've got it. It's um, five eighths. So it's five eighths grade 80 chain. So chain comes in a number of different grades. So let's have a, a quick chat now about uh, chain. It's something which is uh, I didn't get into when I did the anchoring uh, podcast. A is for anchoring so long ago. But uh, a lot of the time what we're using on boats is quite a low quality chain. If you've got a galvanized chain, the things that you're going to be looking for is primarily does it fit into your gypsy? So you're going to be looking at the size of the links, the diameter of the material used in the actual link of the chain. That's how we grade things. And then uh, we're looking, does that fit your gypsy? Absolutely. And then we're looking at price. Let's be realistic. Everyone's looking at price. Despite the fact that hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially a boat is going to be hanging off this, everyone gets stingy about chain. You know, there's a lot of really, really good information to be had about using stainless steel chains. Stainless steel chains are excellent for sliding past themselves and, and flattening out in the anchor locker so you don't end up with big heaps of chain. The galvanized chains have so much friction, they kind of cone up beneath the, the naval pipe. So stainless steel chains aside, we're mostly dealing with... Um, with uh, normal uh, steel chains which have got uh, quite a lot of carbon in them. They're galvanized so they don't rust out really, really fast. So the lowest grade of chain would be a grade 30 chain. Um, it's low carbon uh, steel that's used in it. It's used in industry and agriculture. You often hear this called proof coil. It's like the lowest graded sort of chain there is. If you're going below that, you're off into quite odd things. Um, it's not to be used for overhead lifting. It has no weight rating on it. And all you're looking at is it's heavy and probably strong enough for what you're doing. If you go up from there, you go to grade 43. Grade 43 chain is known as high test chain, and it's used for um, securing containers, for logging, for towing, um, and it is used in the marine industry when you're um, moving things uh, using chain. Now that's not to say it's used for overhead lifting. Grade 43 chain can still not be used, or still cannot rather be used for overhead lifting. The can it be used for overhead lifting test is your idea of like, okay, how carefully was this chain made? If you're not allowed to use it for lifting things overhead, it's not that carefully made. But clearly, you know, what a boat is normally doing pulling on a chain, it's not that much work for the chain. Really, you're looking at things like, you know, does it fit in the gypsy? What's the price point? Um, how neatly does it stack? How easy is it to clean? All those kind of things. But it's considerably stronger. And we'll get into that in just a second, how much stronger. Grade 70 chain is what's called transport chain. It's higher strength again, it's, um, it's heat treated, and it's, uh, it's another carbon steel, but it's typically used um, in, in trucking, in logging, um, highway crews, um, and it's used for um, uh, 
tying things down, securing things on trucks, hence the, the, the transport chain things. Grade 70 chains are like 20% stronger than grade 43 chains, the one below this. But it's still at this point, grade 43 and grade 70 and grade 30, none of those can be used for overhead lifting. The bit when it changes is when you get to grade 80. And that's why I've just put that as being the, the cap on the kind of chain that we're looking at. Um, grade 80 chain is an alloy chain. Um, it can be used for overhead lifting under uh, NACM, which means that the materials used in it, the type of welding, um, how often samples from the production line are tested, all that stuff is under a, a chain which has um, been built to particular specifications. If you're just dealing with grade 30 and grade uh, grade 30 like cheapo chain, it, it very little testing is going on. And of course, if you start buying by price point, you can end up with something that looks like chain, but it's actually manufactured by a process which is not as good. If you've got really cheap chain with cheap welds, salt water gets into it in a warm environment and the thing will just rust out so fast. So, uh, on the mooring that we've got here, we put um, grade 80 chain on it. Now, people say, okay, price point. The price point is not that much higher. It added about 20% onto the cost here in uh, Lunenburg to specify grade 80 chain, which sense of it comes from the extra strength that you get from using a different kind of uh, grade of chain. So if we look at the 5 8 chain that we've got now, we've got a 5 8 chain um, grade 30 chain just sitting on the bottom between the two sinkers. Now, grade 30 chain has got a working load limit of 6,900 pounds, which is like three three tons, give or take. I was trying to generally work everything across to, to metric here. So uh, 6,900 pounds, the working load limit um, is specified by the manufacturer by taking the minimum braking load, the MBL, and dividing it by a safety factor which is um, appropriate to that piece of device, which uh, that, that device or that piece of equipment. So safety factor could range between four and six times. So the WLL, the working load limit, is the updated acronym for what we used to call standard working load, SWL. So WLL and shackles is one quarter of the minimum braking strain. So at 6,900 pounds on that grade 30 chain, we are already like nearly 50% above the weight of the sinker and the minimum braking load will be four times the working load. So that means that we can have jeepers. We're going to be up in like four times, like two to 28,000 pounds that grade 30 chain can take before it would snap. There's no way that picking up one of those sinkers could develop that. There's no dynamic load going onto that chain. So I specify grade 30 to go on the bottom and I'd be looking to replace it every couple of years and buying 20 foot of grade 30 chain, that's not going to break the bank. The big heavy ships chain, which goes uh, across the bottom to create that catenary at one inch on the side, it's clearly a massive uh, load of metal that is down here. And at, at one inch, it, that's a grade one ships chain. Grade For studded ships chain, you have grade one, grade two, grade three. At one inch, it's going to have a breaking point, breaking load of 60,000 pounds. Grade two would have 80,000 and grade three would have 120,000. So you could go up the up the line there and get a grade three ship's chain, but like <laughs> clearly we're into numbers here, which is so far beyond what's required for this boat. As long as it's strong, it's thick, and it does what it says on the on the tin, basically it's fine. So grade one ship's chain at one inch, um, it's going to weigh. Oh, it's going to weigh like 800 pounds for 90 feet. So we've got about 400 pounds in weight of chain down there. It's like I don't know 200 kilos or something. 
and we have an ultimate tensile breaking strain of like 60,000 pounds. Now, the boat that we're dealing with is only a 20-ton boat here. It's 20,000 metric. So at that point, we're getting to a point where we have a chain which is easily able to lift the entire boat in the air. Um, now, I'm pointing this out because this boat is 20 tons, which might only be a little bit more than production 50 footer, but it has an enormous rig on it with this potentially 30,000 pounds pressing against it if you're in a 100 knot gust. So everything is designed here to be way over the top. We've then got uh, another Crosby six and a half ton shackle, which has a working load of 13,000 pounds times by four. Everything in this system so far is uh, up around the 60,000 pound breaking limit, apart from that bit of grade 30 chain that's on the bottom, which is never going to see those kind of loads. So the question then is, what's the riser? What's the thing that comes up from that heavy chain and goes up to the boat? Because it'd be easy to say, well, it's going to be 50 foot of chain. Let's just put some grade 30 or grade 43 on there or something like that. And that's your answer. Like, surely that'll be enough. But that's the weak spot. So... What I wanted to do was just take all of the worry out of it. So rather than going for grade 40 chain or grade 43, sorry, chain, which would be your normal sort of choice, um, I went for grade 80. So what's the difference? At 5 eighths, which is the size of the chain that we've got here, say 6,900 pounds is the working load limit for that grade 30 chain that's on the bottom. The grade 43 chain would have a working load limit of 13,000 pounds, which is the same working limit as the shackles that are in use here. But the grade uh, 80 chain has a working load of uh, 18,000 pounds so 18,000 pounds um, even if the boat pulls on it with all of the force it can possibly muster certainly it's going to be you know a, an enormous pull for, for the chain but it's still gonna be half of its braking limit so clearly I'm building a mooring for an 80 foot boat in in deep water but the same process is the process that anybody should use if you're going to be sorting out a mooring situation for your boat what's the bottom what's the environment around the uh, mooring what's the ultimate strain that is going to be on that boat what are the materials what's the temperature of the water if it's very hot water like down in the caribbean well very hot <laughs> compared to nova scotia it would feel hot but very warm water rather that could be up in the 25 26 degree range you may have other considerations like you know how quickly is this stuff going to degrade a lot of cheap stainless steel chain will degrade very quickly down in the caribbean you've got to pay for more expensive alloy chains to make sure that doesn't happen not an issue for me here but i do need Need to be aware of all elements of what's going on so come the end of the day this morning has been very specifically built for this boat but i hope by opening up the process when it comes to dealing with high winds you've got to be looking at everything from the construction of the sinker the materials that are used in the uh, chain the shackle everything so that it adds up to i can stand on the dock in 40 knots of wind, which I did the other night with a coffee, looking out at the boat, which even down to the point that we have reflective bow numbers on the boat so we can see the boat because like um, our, the, the bigger boat, the Maxi is, I don't know, probably like, 150 meters away from me particularly if it's on the other end of its scope and it's impossible to see it then um, if, if you don't have some kind of reflective uh, uh, stuff on the bow I've got reflective numbers on the bows of these boats so I cast my torch out there easily see the orientation of the boat watch the movement of it as it takes up the strain and then drops off and takes up the strain again and and check and see what's going on so this has been thought through from from way way back um, to be able to get make this uh, mooring very very secure in high winds I am in no way concerned that the boat can uh, break any component in the uh, mooring system and I'm in no way concerned that the 
um, mooring system can move. Now it's in 50 feet of water. And that I think does give me a little bit of cause for concern. Like, you know, that's, that's, it's quite a steep angle going down to that. Even though there's 50 foot of ship's chain, there's 50 foot of um, the grade 85 H chain, the boat pulling hard could possibly lift that um, that ship's chain up. But even when it does, what I did is I connected the ship's chain directly to the shackle, which connects the two uh, sinkers together. I didn't connect it onto the top ring on the first sinker and then cross connect that over. I connected it to the shackle on the other side. So it will attempt to list, lift the first sinker. If it did lift the first sinker, then it would start to try and pull very horizontally on the second one. And I really don't think it's going to have enough. <laughs> I, I don't want to see the storm that that would cause that. Oh, but I, what I'll add in here, though, is that um, I have been looking at the La Palma uh, volcano uh, in the Canary Islands because I've been aware for a number of years of the fact that there was research done in the 90s looking at the fact that there could be a catastrophic collapse of that mountain if the, uh, if the volcano was to get to a point of eruption and follow some of the kind of precedents we saw in mountains like Mount St. Helens, the sides of the mountains, the mountain would start to like inflate basically, unbelievable as that might sound, with lava. That's what we saw in Mount St. Helens. The um, geologists at the time were taking readings on the surface of that mountain and indeed the flanks of the mountain became steeper because the mountain was kind of expanding, it was kind of blowing up. So um, if the uh, rock faces on the side of the mountains in La Palma get any steeper with some geological faults that they found. There was a, uh, a concern years ago that, uh, f let me get this right, 500 cubic kilometers of rock could fall in one go into the ocean. Um, I'll, I'll quickly point out that 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 has been somewhat refuted now and they're thinking that if it did do it it would break off in probably much smaller amounts but they're talking still that it could be amounts of like 80 to 100 cubic kilometers of rock would fall into the into the ocean either one or two or three whatever it is like um, uh, individual smaller slides so the great concern about the, the big deluge of rock is somewhat uh, removed, but there is a, a genuine risk that a pretty big wave could be set off across the Atlantic if something in La Palma gave way. The original discussion in the 90s was that you could have a wave which would extend many, many miles inland, would be hundreds of feet high by the time it crossed the continental shelf and started to, to stack up. It would cross the Atlantic um, in about six hours doing like 450 miles an hour. Like this thing is like a, a shock wave essentially of energy that's radiating out from La Palma and it's the western flank of La Palma in the Canary Islands. Remember the Canary Islands are just to the west of North Africa. A western flank there is pointing directly at the US and at eastern Canada. So um, I was looking at that because obviously there's like giant volcanic eruptions going on there at the moment. And then starting to calculate like, OK, like worst case scenario, what would happen in this bay where I live? Well, it would have to come all the way across to almost one of the most remotest places um, in, in North America that's likely to hit. It's not going to hit any further north than um, Newfoundland and uh, it wouldn't hit the northern coast of Newfoundland. So we're within like 400 miles of Newfoundland. So this is kind of the extremity of where it would have a serious effect. Um, but it would have to come all the way here. It would then have to go over the... Um, 
the continental shelf, which is the where the edge of the Gulf Stream is for us here, which is about 130 miles offshore. And then it would have to start moving its way in over the uh, underwater topography, which is between us and the continental shelf, which is ranges between 50 meters, 100 meters, 200 meters, 100 meters, 50 meters, a very uneven bottom to it before it finally gets to the sheltered area and the, the shallower area, which is just off of Lunenburg here. So for a big wave that's coming in, it basically would stack up super high when it hit that, um, that the, the 200 meter contour, but then there are, it gets shallower and that starts to destabilize the wave and then it gets deeper again and that would start to mess mess up that kind of um, that formation which it got into, which would be the greatest fear is that this thing comes in like a wall of water. So it would have broken up quite a lot. And then the entrance to Mahone Bay actually points pretty much to the east. So then we're looking at this wave would have to wrap itself around and into Mahone Bay and then it would have to find its way past all the islands of Mahone Bay and then it would have to get through the 200 meter wide entrance to Princess Inlet where I live. So I'm not that concerned <laughs> that there's like some giant wall of water coming towards me, certainly because as I said at the beginning, it's probably going to be a lot less than was originally mooted. But I did think like, hey, what happens if there's like a giant tide? That might be what this um, kind of manifests itself as that suddenly water levels in this bay go up by three meters or four meters or something, you know, gradually and quickly with a bit of a wave on top, but can the boats ride over it? So it's kind of a crazy way of looking at it. But, um, you know, there's a giant volcano, <laughs> there's scientific research that says that it may explode and do all this stuff. So I thought about it and I thought about the moorings we just put in and realized like we have 50 foot of water here. Even if the water level went up by many, many meters, we have 100 foot of chain on this thing. It's all incredibly strong. So I'd imagine that what would happen is that the the initial onrush, the boat would start to lift or something and that the any waves that came in here she'd stuff her nose into it and she may pick up the first sinker but she'll never pick up the second sinker and I think the biggest issue would probably be flotsam and jetsam in the water just washing past the boat and and destroying uh, her in that kind of method that you know something hits her some other boat or whatever so the biggest threat probably is actually that the drawback that occurs before and during these multiple waves that this thing would uh, manifest itself as that that drawback when the the tide goes right out, that's actually more likely when damage would occur or when the boats end up at such a precarious angle that um, they can't float back up in a natural and normal way. I think if you if you have your boat in harbors which get very, very low on water, certainly in the UK, uh, I know where my father used to keep his boat in the south of England and, uh, and also up in uh, Liverpool, Lancaster area, the tide goes out so far there that if you haven't planned for it at a, a super like low tide on a, on 110% springs, you can suddenly find that your yacht's on its side. And uh, obviously bilge keels and all the rest of it's not gonna really happen with an open 60. So in this scenario, yeah, I guess that I'd have to be aware that um, it's actually Falcon on that mooring that's so close in, which is at greatest risk because she's sitting at low water with only like four feet under the keel while Osprey's new mooring, the Maxi's new mooring is in 50 foot of water. So yeah basically take the boats out and strap and moor them together, um, cross-connect as much as I could, and then put them both on this and work on the basis that picking up those sinkers in succession would be the best possible way for the boats to ride through. Um, and that then they would be sitting in 50 foot of water. So the water would have to go out by 35 feet for them to touch the touch the bottom unexpectedly. But an interesting way of kind of 
acid testing the theory of the mooring like could it stand some crazy um, black swan event like this uh, this explosion in La Palma and the and the wave it would create on the US East Coast and I'd like to say also um, a bit of a shout out to um, John Harris and uh, his lovely wife Phyllis who run the attainable adventure cruising website if you haven't been there before it's a fantastic resource for uh, seamanship John and Phyllis both do these regular blogs all about details of their high latitude uh, cruising which they've been doing for years and years on their boat Morgan's Cloud they have incredible experience of um, of all points north in the Atlantic and and all kinds of sailing in general and their, their blog is a great source of, uh, of uh, research and, and development for me so um, when it came time to put a mooring in here John lives like literally a thousand meters down the road here, right? So um, I asked him, what did you do? So they put in, let me get this right, they put in two 3,000 pound rocks. They used ship's chain between the rocks and they um, they welded their shackles shut, which I thought was an interesting uh, thing. I didn't weld the shackles shut on what I'm doing because, um, I, you know, I, I I trust in and believe in mousings because I've been uh, in tall ships for, for years and on ships as a whole for years. John has got a lot of experience of the sea, um, but he uh, he chose to, to go with welding the, the shackles shut. Um, I can replace my shackles underwater, I guess is the only thing which is beneficial to that. Am I worried about the mousings coming undone? Not that Mike Morland from Ironbound Rigging here in Lunenburg did those mousings like proper style. I watched him doing it. The guy knows his skill. Corten, um, stainless uh, mousing wire that is never coming undone. Not in a million years. I had like eight wraps around it. So little difference there. We both put, uh, John and I both put one inch ship's chain as the as the bottom chain, as the, the weighted chain on the bottom. And then um, I think I spec'd grade 80 chain where he probably went with a grade 40 chain for, for his riser because ultimately it was going to a smaller boat with less forces. So he didn't need to like spec it out in quite that way. What some of the people around here were telling me to do is that they the chain uh, they replace the chain with um, with Dyneema because Dyneema is so strong um, and it's so light uh, it seems to create a better characteristic for the mooring boy or something or you don't need as big a boy or I'm not quite sure the 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 good thing for me is that the biggest mooring boy they sell. Uh, it still looks small at the front of an 80-foot boat. And, you know, the great thing where I live is that when you go to the supermarkets here, there's fishermen's waterproofs in the supermarket. And when you go to the hardware store, they have incredible hardware resources for, for moorings and boats and all sorts of stuff. So the biggest mooring ball they sell in the, the, the shop here in Lunenburg still looks small at the front of this 80-footer. So it's not kind of an issue for me. But um, yeah, I was very happy what we came up with. And I feel that the weight of the riser chain adds somewhat to the catenary of what's going on in, in most normal situations. Um, one thing that we have to be aware of here is that the mooring chains or mooring risers, whether it's Dyneema or chain, um, there's these weird little things that live in the water called sea squirts and they they're killing off all of the mussel farms around here they get themselves onto anything which is in the water and then they have such a, a large weight that just their their physical mass starts to weigh down ropes and weigh down chains and weigh down anything that's in the water so you have to kind of regularly clean them off but um, I'm imagining that if you had a smaller mooring buoy that can become an issue where the sea squirts actually start to pull it underwater so um yeah, I, I guess that's that's my mooring situation. The location of where it is. Um, I, the other thing we could talk about is the fact that sometimes you've you've got to go in a different direction. Of course, I'm talking about concrete and rocks. Um, people have used um, 
you know old uh, old uh, 55 gallon uh, drums with concrete in it they've used engine blocks and i will always work on the basis that if it's worked for you and it's worked long term um, and it's been through a lot of big weather then maybe that's okay for you maybe that's all right like certainly um uh metal i think it only loses like one eighth of its uh like 15 percent of its uh mass underwater so it's incredibly dense um but that means it's incredibly small which means you don't get very much suction for us around here this mud allows us to have this uh extra ability if you're in sand i'm not sure how much suction there is in sand i think things can wiggle down into sand but i think over time they can wiggle back up out of sand quite easily so um metal can be good but obviously it's going to start to degrade in the end um, the chains that I have down on the, these things, in the end, they're going to need changing out. I would imagine that my riser chain probably need changing every five years. Um, and then the ship's chain on the bottom could do 10 years, but you wouldn't want to push it. Um, other mooring fields, they'll use mushroom anchors, which are a lot smaller and can hold a huge amount of weight. They're best used in uh, in muddy bottoms, but it's just exactly what you might imagine from the description. It looks like a mushroom and you're attaching your... Uh, your your bottom chain onto the what would be the stem of the mushroom this thing's on the seabed and uh, they scoot themselves down into the mud and they are so so strong it's uh it's kind of like the anchoring systems that the north sea oil rigs use you know the bruce anchor was developed for north sea oil rigs because it's it's for holding in mud so a surface area that can get itself down into the mud and create like a hydraulic lock in the mud um, those mushroom anchors are unbelievably strong and then of course there's the um, the other ones that screw into the the bottom uh, i think there's a few brand names but they uh i've never used them i've got to say if anybody's had experience of working with those um those ground screws or anchor screws or whatever they're called they're also very very light but you do need to have someone that um that manufactures them and and for my part of I've got to I've got to see them working where I am. Does that make any sense? Like we've got mud here. Like I was talking to uh, a chap I met a couple of days ago, actually, who um, uh, is a very experienced craftsman, um, boat builder. Um, we hadn't met before. He kind of reached out across the internet. He lives very close by, and we went and had a coffee together and chatted. And he was he lives just here, and he was saying he went out a low tide where he uh, where he lives about a kilometer from me, and um, he went out with a let me get this right, a sixteen foot piece of two by two wood, and he wanted to see like what the bottom was made of. And uh, at low tide, with only two foot of water, or three foot of water at his house, he pushed the sixteen foot length of timber like down into the mud until it was at the water surface so there was at least like 13 or 14 foot of mud there so i see that as being something we can use to our advantage so i'm not sure how the the screws uh work in that kind of super deep mud I, if anybody's got information on that i'd be very very interested um there's cost in terms of buying them um that's that's not an issue obviously if you're trying to protect your boat but for me it was a case of there's no one manufacturing around here they don't uh use them around here and it would be a uh, I'd be nervous that there was no precedence. I've got to say, there's a, there's a lot of security for me in in weight, uh, and and the extra knowledge that the suction helps is really really good. So, in terms of dealing with high winds in this situation, I have you know I'm in a part of the world where um, I know which direction the winds are going to come up. We're right on the coast, and the 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 weather, the big weather, is going to come up the Gulf Stream, which they said is about 130 miles offshore. It's going to come up that warm weather, uh, or up that warm water rather, and I'm at this location going to be exposed to mostly 
northerly and northeasterly winds. Uh, the strongest winds of the year will be from those angles. And I have a property. I've picked a mooring spot which is sheltered from those angles. It's sheltered by a piece of land that has just the right contour to lift the wind up and lift the wind virtually over the boats. And that land is broken by trees to further slow the wind. Um, I've got the boats tucked in as close as I can in the bay. As I say, the open 60 is probably sitting in like... It, well, I tell you, when the wind blows from the west here, the back of the open 60 is about 20 feet off the dock. It's literally petrifying, but it's never moved. So, you know, we just keep our fingers crossed. But the uh, the Maxi is much further out in 50 foot of water and she's still protected from the wind. But um, she's she's still close by anybody's normal uh, guess of like how how close you put an 80 foot boat to the to the land. And then the uh, mooring system, which I used is very simple very uh, easy to understand components, um, easy to replace components, and all of it has a weight which is suited to the maximum possible conditions I could expect in this area. I've even given it the kind of acid test I said, thinking about like, could a tsunami setting off from La Palma be a problem here? Could a hundred knot gust be a problem? If it passes all those tests, then tickety-boo, right? Where you are and where your boat is, you might not have all those choices, but is there a better corner to the mooring field? Is there a different river? Is there, you know, is there a, is there a place where they have a, a better um, maintenance system or inspection system for the moorings? Is, how, how can you make it as good as possible? And I guess the whole of the, the whole of the thing with mooring comes down to the same, the same basic consideration that it is with anchoring, which is that you could have a $250,000 boat, which is hanging off an anchor or hanging off a mooring where the link that may break and send all of your, all of your, your lovely boat and all of your dreams and hopes up on the shore. It could be a $25 shackle that breaks and makes, makes it a really bad day. So I have gone through everything with, with Mike from Ironbound Rigging and made sure that everything is as bomber as possible on that rig uh, that we've got down below the maxi. I think uh, <laughs> just listening to my own description of the mooring that's underneath Falcon, perhaps we need to do something to check out that weird sonar tube arrangement down there. But hey, that's about it for moorings and high weather. I think there are a few other things that have come up on this so I'd like to circle back to in the future. Certainly, I'd like to do some more research on ground screws and just how strong they are and you know where they can be used and what the benefits and the, and the considerations are. Um, but yeah, if you've got other experiences with moorings, other things, tricks that you're pulling, I'd love to hear about them. Um, one thing I'll leave you with is an observation which uh, happened last summer when I had Ryan Barkey here. Remember we did a, an interview with him on the podcast and we, and we attempted to uh, secure the open 60 to the dock using the lines coming out the back of it so that it was um, stern moored onto the dock, which is a bit of an odd move with an open 60 anyway, as you can imagine, but we were painting the bowsprit, so that's why it had to be that way around. Um, wind came up very, very quickly, and we concluded uh, quite fast. It was Ryan's idea. Let's just, just tighten in the lines as it is. Let's not turn the boat around as the wind's come up so fast. Let's just keep it moored by the stern. And you know what? That boat was so much more steady in the high winds. Really, unbelievably so. Now, it's a very specifically shaped boat. Um, open 60s, you may or may not know. They they flare very quickly from the bow till they get to maximum bead, beam at the shrouds, but then they keep that beam all the way aft, literally right to the uh, main sheet traveler, which is on the, the aftermost section of the, of the deck. So they're absolute surfboards. Um, where a boat would be hunting around normally at its mooring, um, one of the things I think we discussed it in the podcast about 
anchoring we were talking about veering at the mooring and the fact that the or at the anchor rather that the boat can start to sail around it, it turns one of its flanks to the wind and because of the the pressure on the rig and the shape of the keel it gets squirted forward just like a bar of soap gets squirted forward in squeezed hands so the wind pressure and the keel pressure makes the boat sail even if there's no sails that's pretty obvious to us right as mariners but um if it's got a mooring line on the end of it it sails off one direction then gets yanked back and swung around so it shows its other flank and then it sets off sailing in the next direction only to be snatched and turned around that action is called veering and when you get to the end of the scope uh, or the end of the uh, slack that's in the chain or in the mooring or whatever it is whether you're anchored or moored um, that can be seven or eight times the normal forces that would be uh, on your anchoring or mooring system. So having the boat veering around at the mooring is a very bad idea. I do see here a lot of people have very long uh, lines that run from the end of the moorings out to the boats, like 16 or 17 foot of line that's between the mooring buoy and the bow of the boat. Not drawn up on the bow, but actually 17 foot gap between the bow of the boat and the buoy. I'm not really sure why they do that. Be I think maybe there's a feeling that it would further enhance the angle perhaps you know it's kind of like anchoring rules right you're adding road onto the chain um, you're moored by the chain but in heavy weather you could let out the um, a mixed road on an anchoring situation so if you have long long lines for your mooring it's kind of like helping the catenary isn't it but not very good when you're then trying to lay out a mooring field where boats have massive long lines on them all year round the thing is that um, if you can stop the bow of the boat from moving around too much, if you can stop it from veering, you massively reduce the forces air on it. Now, most of the time when heavy winds are blowing, if you have any kind of open fetch and the waves are going to come in with the wind and the boat needs to show its bow to the wind so that it can cut through those waves, the waves are the much bigger force that's acting on it normally. So it's, uh, it's an odd... It's an odd kind of observation to realize that if we turn the open 60 round, it totally changes the aerodynamics on the rig and it changes the, the obviously the forces underwater. We've got those two rudders sticking out kind of at an angle at the, at the, at the front now. And we've turned the whole boat around. The stern of the boat is at the front of the mooring situation. It seems to present itself to the wind in a completely different way and just stays absolutely still. I had been considering putting little riding sails up on them in heavy winds and what have you, but as there's never going to be any real waves in this bay, so it doesn't make any difference which way around the boat's turned, I discovered, oh, we'll just <laughs> just turn the boat around if it gets very windy. So I shall uh, I shall check back in with you if we actually ever do it in a... I've not been brave enough yet to do it like, oh, there's a hurricane coming, let's turn the boat around. But I have done it in 35, 40 knots. It's very odd to see your boat like the wrong way around, but um, it sits there absolutely steady. So... I guess keep experimenting with your setup and keep learning and sharing information and and for me you know just going through old books and looking at these things it's incredible what um, as we always say with sailing it goes around in a circle right you just keep reading that non-fiction um, sailing stuff and you're amazing what kind of tips you can pick up right well that's the end of that one we're just coming into an hour here so i say i'm going to do this one now about high winds at a mooring and therefore kind of what's the best mooring situation we'll look at um high winds and anchor next what i will do that one we've discussed how to anchor that's one of the earlier podcasts we did that was a is for anchoring so you can look back through these podcasts if you haven't already listened to that one um, but i'll look at you know tactics that you can use while you're at the anchor to further reduce the loads and common problems and and things that go wrong to to take the conversation on from that previous 
previous uh, podcast and look particularly at what to do when the winds are very, very high. And then we'll be looking after that at what to do with high winds ashore. Basically, what's the best layup tactics so that you make sure that the boat is not caught out in a situation where it's damaged by the wind or blown over or ripped or damaged or whatever it is in the in the boatyard or wherever you've got it. And then the last one, of course, will be what to do when you're at sea um, and you're in very high winds. So I think we'll keep coming back to this over time in different formats. You can imagine it's a question I regularly get asked, uh, you know, how to deal with bad weather at sea. So we'll, we'll take a little bite of it this time. We'll look at high winds. It's kind of interesting stories always around that sort of stuff and, um, and see if there's anything there particularly that we can do in case you do get caught out this winter. But wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that right now the wind is low and you are safe and sound and enjoying the last days of warmth if you've got any. Um, certainly the sun is still blasting through the windows here in Nova Scotia. So I'm going to go out and enjoy that and I'll speak to you in the next one. Cheers.